Welcome to Tom Reads Books, the podcast where, whatever you're doing, I take you on an adventure through some of literature's most loved treasures. If you do enjoy the podcast, make sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and also check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash tomreadsbooks, where I release two exclusive episodes every week of a completely different book, full audiobook versions of all books read, and you can help choose future books for me to read. Now, though, I'd like to invite you to settle in. Relax. And let me tell you a story. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Continuing Chapter 7 Meantime, our young companion, who sat too removed from us to hear what was said, began to evident symptoms of uneasiness, probably repenting that he had denied himself the treat of Catherine's society for fear of a little fatigue. His father remarked the restless glances wandering to the window and the hand irresolutely extended towards his cap. Get up, you idle boy! he exclaimed with assumed heartiness. Away after them. They are just at the corner by the stand of hives. Linton gathered his energies and left the hearth. The lattice was open, and as he stepped out, I heard Cathy inquiring of her unsociable attendant, what was that inscription over the door? Harriton stared up and scratched his head like a true clown. It's some damnable writing, he answered. I cannot read it. Can't read it, cried Catherine. I can read it, it's English, but I want to know why it is there. Linton giggled, the first appearance of mirth he had exhibited. He does not know his letters, he said to his cousin. Could you believe in the existence of such a colossal dunce? Is he all as he should be, asked Miss Cathy seriously, or is he simple? Not right. I've questioned him twice now, and each time he looked so stupid I think he does not understand me. I can hardly understand him, I'm sure. Linton repeated his laugh and glanced at Harriton tauntingly, who certainly did not seem quite clear of comprehension at that moment. There's nothing the matter but laziness, is there, Earnshaw? He said. My cousin fancies you are an idiot. There you experience the consequence of scorning book-larning, as you would say. Have you noticed, Catherine, his frightful Yorkshire pronunciation? Why, where the devil is the use hunt? Growled Harriton, more ready in answering his daily companion. He was about to enlarge further, but the two youngsters broke into a noisy fit of merriment, my giddy miss being delighted to discover that he might turn his strange talk to matter of amusement. Where is the use of the devil in that sentence? tittered Linton. Papa told you not to say any bad words, and you can't open your mouth without one. Do try to behave like a gentleman now, do. If thou wert more of a lass than a lad, I'd fell thee this minute, I would. Pitiful lath of a crater, resorted the angry boar, 
retreating while his face burnt with mingled rage and mortification, for he was conscious of being insulted and embarrassed how to resent it. Mr. Heathcliff, having overheard the conversation, as well as I, smiled when he saw him go, but immediately afterwards cast a look of singular aversion on the flippant pair, who remained chattering in the doorway, the boy finding animation enough while discussing Harriton's faults and deficiencies and relating anecdotes of his goings-on, and the girl relishing his pert and spiteful sayings without considering the ill-nature they evinced. But I began to dislike more than to compassionate Linton, and to excuse his father in some measure for holding him cheap. We stayed till afternoon. I could not tear Miss Cathy away before, but happily my master had not quitted his apartment and remained ignorant of our prolonged absence. As we walked home, I would fain have enlightened my charge on the characters of the people we had quitted, but she got it into her head that I was prejudiced against them. Aha! she cried. You take papa's side, Ellen. You are partial. I know, or else you wouldn't have cheated me so many years into the notion that Linton lived a long way from here. I'm really extremely angry, only I'm so pleased I can't show it. But you must hold your tongue about my uncle. He's my uncle, remember, and I'll scold papa for quarrelling with him. And so she ran on till I dropped endeavouring to convince her of her mistake. She did not mention the visit that night, because she did not see Mr. Linton. Next day it all came out, sadly to my chagrin, and still I was not altogether sorry. I thought the burden of directing and warning would be more efficiently borne by him than me, but he was too timid in giving satisfactory reasons for his wish that she would shun connection with the household of the Heights, and Catherine liked good reasons for every restraint that harassed her petted will. Papa, she exclaimed after the morning salutations, guess whom I saw yesterday in my walk in the moors. Ah, papa, you started. You've not done right, have you now? I saw, but listen, and you shall hear how I found you out. And Ellen, who is in league with you, and yet pretended to pity me so, when I kept hoping, and was always disappointed about Linton's coming back. She gave a faithful account of her excursion, and its consequences, and my master, though he cast more than one reproachful look at me, said nothing till she had concluded. Then he drew her to him, and asked if she knew why he had concealed Linton's near neighbourhood from her. Could she think it was to deny her a pleasure that she might harmlessly enjoy? It was because you disliked Mr. Heathcliff, she answered. Then you believe I care more for my own feelings than yours, Cathy? He said, No, it was not because I disliked Mr. Heathcliff, but because Mr. Heathcliff dislikes me, and is a most diabolical man, delighting to wrong and ruin those he hates if they give him the slightest opportunity. I knew that you could not keep up an acquaintance with your cousin without being brought into contact with him, and I knew he would detest you on my account, so for your own good and nothing else, I took precautions that you should not see Linton again. I meant to explain this some time as you grew older, and I'm sorry I delayed it. But Mr. Heathcliff was quite cordial, Papa, observed Catherine, not at all convinced, and he didn't object to our seeing each other. He said I might come to his house when I pleased. 
only I must not tell you because you had quarrelled with him and would not forgive him for marrying Aunt Isabella, and you won't. You are the one to be blamed. He is willing to let us be friends, at least, Linton and I, and you are not. My master, perceiving that she would not take his word for her uncle-in-law's evil disposition, gave a hazy sketch of his conduct to Isabella and the manner in which Wuthering Heights became his property. He could not bear to discourse long upon the topic, for though he spoke little of it, he still felt the same horror and detestation of his ancient enemy that had occupied his heart ever since Mrs. Linton's death. She might have been living yet, if it had not been for him, was his constant bitter reflection, and, in his eyes, Heathcliff seemed a murderer. Miss Cathy, conversant with no bad deeds except her own slight acts of disobedience, injustice and passion, rising from hot temper and thoughtlessness, and repented of on the day they were committed, was amazed at the blackness of spirit that could brood on and cover revenge for years, and deliberately prosecute its plans without a visitation of remorse. She appeared so deeply impressed and shocked at this new view of human nature, excluded from all her studies and all her ideas till now, that Mr. Edgar deemed it unnecessary to pursue the subject. He merely added, You will know hereafter, darling, why I wish you to avoid his house and family. Now, return to your old employments and amusements, and think no more about them. Catherine kissed her father, and sat down quietly to her lessons for a couple of hours, according to custom. Then she accompanied him into the grounds, and the whole day passed as usual. But in the evening, when she had retired to her room, and I went to help her to undress, I found her crying on her knees by the bedside. Oh, fie, silly child, I exclaimed. If you had any real griefs, you'd be ashamed to waste a tear on this little contrariety. You never had one shadow of substantial sorrow, Miss Catherine. Suppose for a minute the master and I were dead, and you were by yourself in the world. How would you feel then? Compare the present occasion with such an affliction as that, and be thankful for the friends you have instead of coveting more. I'm not crying for myself, Ellen, she answered. It's for him. He expected to see me again tomorrow, and there he'll be so disappointed, and he'll wait for me, and I shan't come. Nonsense, said I. Do you imagine that he thought as much as you as you have found of him? Hasn't he Harriton for a companion? Not one in a hundred would weep at losing a relation they had just seen twice for two afternoons. Linton will conjecture how it is, and trouble himself no further about you. But may I not write a note to tell him why I cannot come? She asked, rising to her feet. And just send those books I promised to lend him. His books are not as nice as mine. And he wanted to have them extremely when I told him how interesting they were. May I not, Ellen? No, indeed, no, indeed, replied I with decision. Then he would write to you, and there'd never be an end to it. No, Miss Catherine. The acquaintance must be dropped entirely, so papa expects, and I shall see it is done. But how can one little note, she recommenced, putting on an imploring countenance. Silence, I interrupted. We'll not begin with your little notes. Get into bed. She threw at me a very naughty look, so naughty that I would not kiss her good night at first. 
I covered her up and shut her door in great displeasure. But, repenting halfway, I returned softly, and lo, there was Miss standing at the table with a bit of blank paper before her and a pencil in her hand, which she guiltily slipped out of sight on my re-entrance. You'll get nobody to take that, Catherine, I said, if you write it, and at present I shall put out your candle. I set the extinguisher on the flame, receiving as I did so a slap on my hand and a petulant cross thing. I then quitted her again, and she drew the bolt in one of her worst, most peevish humours. The letter was finished and forwarded to its destination by a milk-fetcher who came from the village, but that I didn't learn till some time afterwards. Weeks passed on, and Cathy recovered her temper, though she grew wondrous fond of stealing off to corners by herself, and often, if I came near her suddenly while reading, she would start and bend over the book, evidently desirous to hide it, and I detected edges of loose paper sticking out beyond the leaves. She also got a trick of coming down early in the morning and lingering about the kitchen as if she were expecting the arrival of something, and she had a small drawer in a cabinet in the library which she would trifle over for hours and whose key she took special care to remove when she left it. One day, as she inspected this drawer, I observed that the playthings and trinkets which recently formed its contents were transmuted into bits of folded paper. My curiosity and suspicions were roused. I determined to take a peep in her mysterious treasures. So, at night, as soon as she and my master were safe upstairs, I searched and readily found among my house keys one that would fit the lock. Having opened... I emptied the whole contents into my apron and took them with me to examine at leisure in my own chamber. Though I could not but suspect, I was still surprised to discover that they were a mass of correspondence, daily almost it must have been, from Linton Heathcliff, answers to documents forwarded by her. The earlier dated were embarrassed and short. Gradually, however, they expanded into copious love letters, Foolish, as the age of the writer rendered natural, yet with touches here and there which I thought were borrowed from a more experienced source. Some of them struck me as singularly odd components of ardour and flatness, commencing in strong feeling and concluding in the affected, wordy way that a schoolboy might use to a fancied, incorporeal sweetheart. Whether they satisfied Cathy, I don't know, but they appeared very worthless trash to me. After turning over as many as I thought proper, I tied them in a handkerchief and set them aside, relocking the vacant drawer. Following her habit, my young lady descended early and visited the kitchen. I watched her go to the door on the arrival of a certain little boy, and while the dairymaid filled his can, she tucked something into his jacket pocket and plucked something out. I went round by the garden and laid wait for the messenger, who fought valorously to defend his trust, and we split the milk between us. But I succeeded in abstracting the epistle, and threatening serious consequences if he did not look sharp home, I remained under the wall and perused Miss Cathy's affectionate composition. It was more simple and more eloquent than her cousin's, very pretty and very silly. I shook my head and went meditating into the house.
The day being wet, she could not divert herself with rambling about the park, so at the conclusion of her morning studies, she resorted to the solace of the drawer. Her father sat reading at the table, and I, on purpose, had sought a bit of work in some unripped fringes of the window curtain, keeping my eyes steadily fixed on her proceedings. Never did any bird flying back to a plundered nest which it had left brimful of chirping young ones express more complete despair in its anguished cries and flutterings than she by her single, Oh! and the change that transfigured her late happy countenance. Mr. Linton looked up. What is the matter, love? Have you hurt yourself? he said. His tone and look assured her he had not been the discoverer of the hoard. No, papa, she gasped. Ellen, Ellen, come upstairs, I'm sick. I obeyed her summons and accompanied her out. Oh, Ellen, you have got them, she commenced immediately dropping on her knees when we were enclosed alone. Oh, give them to me and I'll never, never do so again. Don't tell Papa you have not told Papa, Ellen. Say you have not. I've been exceedingly naughty, but I won't do it any more. With a grave serenity in my manner, I bid her stand up. So, I exclaimed, Miss Catherine, you are tolerably far on, it seems. You may well be ashamed of them. A fine bundle of trash you study in your leisure hours, to be sure. Why, it's good enough to be printed. And what do you suppose the master will think when I display it before him? I haven't shown it yet, but you needn't imagine I shall keep your ridiculous secrets. For shame! And you must have led the way in writing such absurdities. He would not have thought of beginning, I'm certain. I didn't, I didn't! sobbed Cathy, fit to break her heart. I didn't once think of loving him till... Loving? cried I, as scornfully as I could utter the word, loving. Did anybody ever hear the like? I might just as well talk of loving the miller who comes once a year to buy our corn. Pretty loving indeed. And both times together you have seen Linton hardly four hours in your life. Now here is the babyish trash. I'm going with it to the library, and we'll see what your father says to such loving. She sprang at her precious epistles, but I held them above my head, and then she poured out further frantic entreaties that I would burn them, do anything rather than show them, and being really fully as inclined to laugh as scold, for I esteemed it all girlish vanity, I at length relented in a measure, and asked, If I consent to burn them, will you promise faithfully? Never to send, nor receive a letter again, nor a book, for I perceive you have sent him books, nor locks of hair, nor rings, nor playthings. We don't send playthings, cried Catherine, her pride overcoming her shame. Nor anything at all then, my lady, I said, unless you will, here I go. I promise, Ellen, she cried, catching my dress. Oh, put them in the fire, do, do but when I proceeded to open a place with the poker, the sacrifice was too painful to be borne. She earnestly supplicated that I would spare her one or two. One or two, Helen, to keep for Linton's sake. I unknotted the handkerchief 
and commenced dropping them in from an angle, and the flame curled up the chimney. I will have one, you cruel wretch, she screamed, darting her hand into the fire and drawing forth some half-consumed fragments at the expense of her fingers. Very well, and I will have some to exhibit to papa, I answered, shaking back the rest into the bundle and turning anew to the door. She emptied her blackened pieces into the flames and motioned me to finish the immolation. It was done. I stirred up the ashes and interred them under a shovel full of coals, and she, mutely, with a sense of intense injury, retired to her private apartment. I descended to tell my master that the young lady's qualm of sickness was almost gone, but I judged it best for her to lie down a while. She wouldn't dine, but she reappeared at tea, pale and red about the eyes, and marvellously subdued in outward aspect. Next morning, I answered the letter by a slip of paper inscribed, Master Heathcliff is requested to send no more notes to Miss Linton, and she will not receive them. And thenceforth, the little boy came with vacant pockets. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Tom Reads Books podcast. If you'd like to support the show, leaving a rating and a short review on whatever podcast platform you're using really goes a long way to help us reach new listeners. Other than that, I hope you have a wonderful day, and I look forward to reading to you again very soon.